Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Amity. And I'm Laura. Let's get started. It's funny. I'm like listening to you say that, and then I'm like, I wonder how my Let's Get Started is going to come out. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And as I'm reading, I'm like, I don't know. I try to make it a little different every time, but I don't. I don't know if that actually happens. Anyway, we're super excited to start Island of the Blue Dolphins today. I have a funny story about this. I thought maybe, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about if I'd read it or not. I thought maybe, actually, I didn't think I had read it. And as I was reading it, when I got to a certain spot, I went all of a sudden, I've read this. Okay. <laughs> I think in middle school, I think we had to read it for middle school. And then as I'm reading, I'm like, and now I think I remember what happens. Oh, cool. Okay. So funny, right? Yeah. I And what I think is funny about that is you've got these memories, certain things and scenes from books will stand out to you. And then all of a sudden it comes back like, oh, I've read this. I don't know. It's like in the files back there somewhere. That's always the way that I describe it. And it's like, our brains are so amazing and they really are these just incredible filing systems. Sometimes we just have to have the right trigger to find the right file. Yeah. And open it up. And the only thing I can think is it couldn't have been high school because I know I didn't read it in high school. So it hadn't mm. been middle school. But yeah. Anyways, so there we go. I've read this before. I love it. That's so cool. Island of the Blue Dolphins was written by Scott O'Dell. And I thought a couple of things were really interesting about him. This is hilarious. He was born Odell Gabriel Scott. Really? <laughs> yes. In a, and he was born in LA. He loved being outside, just like most of these children's authors that love to write about the outdoors. So that LA was still like a frontier town when he was born. So it wasn't what it is today, right? And this is funny too. When he started college, he was shocked to find out that he wasn't the smartest one there. So he went to four different colleges. He was really trying to find one like, I I could go to this one and be smarter. But so he published his first book when he was 25. Then he wrote a bunch of nonfiction novels for adults and children. And then one time they accidentally printed his name as Scott O'Dell rather than Mm. Odell Gabriel Scott. And he loved it. And so he stuck Mm. with it from then on. That's funny to think he'd never thought of that before. It took somebody else to make that mistake. And then he's like, hey, this is way better. This name works. So he did change his name legally. Eventually, he served in World War One and World War Two. Oh, wow. And he published Island of the Blue Dolphins in 1960. That was his first children's book that he published. This is interesting because we read, we just did Charlotte's Web back in May. And that won the Newbery Award. And so did this. I saw somebody on YouTube that was reading through all the Newberries. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting, like kind of an interesting project. Like each year she was. And so he went on to publish two dozen books for young readers. All of them, almost all of them were historical fiction. Then he, this is kind of funny too. This is the last thing I have. He established the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction in 1984. And he won it oh. two years later. How can you win your own award that you established? That's really funny. I guess it would be a matter of like, how did he go about establishing it? Like, was he like, let's make this a thing. But then he appointed a board to like, be the one to have other people 
picking choosing yeah yeah he won his own award that was funny last thing was that he was married twice and he died when he was 91 yeah i just looked at the back of of my book and it says he lived from 1898 to 1989 there's a lot of nines and eights in there That's interesting to think. Okay. So my great grandfather was born in 1900, which that's the only reason I know that is because Mm. it's super easy. And so we always knew how old he was, you know, and he died in 1997. So he was 97 when he died. And now I think about it, which that was when I was a senior in high school and it doesn't seem like that long ago, but now I'm like, if he was still alive, he'd be 123. (laughs) That's old. So he, this guy was like about the same age as my great grandfather. So that's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. That's very cool. So yeah. One thing too, that I was just reading in the back of the book is that he was given lots of honors and awards, but also the Hans Christian Andersen author medal, which is the highest international recognition for a body of work by an author of books for young readers. You know, there's the Newbery medal, but the Hans Christian Andersen author medal is actually even like next level so that's kind of cool wouldn't it be interesting to do it like a study of all the awards as i'm reading through these i'm thinking about making lists of all the different awards that are mentioned i mean even like the book i'm going to share at the end of this episode it talks about all these awards that i've never heard of i think that that's a really that that would be very interesting because we're always like oh they received this award and this award what does that even mean yeah. And when do they come out and how are they yeah. selected? And like, there's a lot of books that will have this little medal on it and it'll say the Caldecott medal. And you're like, oh, this must be a great book. Caldecott medal is just for the illustrations. Yeah. And usually it's a decent story too. Like, you know, kind of needs to be in order to even get recognized at all, but it's not for the story. It's for the illustrations. And I didn't even know that until just a few years ago. Yeah. So kind of changed my perspective, but really quickly, Before we jump into the actual book, I think that this is a really important introduction. In my version of this book, which is the 50th anniversary edition, there is an introduction by Lois Lowry, who of course is the author of The Giver, Number of the Stars, quite a few other wonderful children's books. She gives like a brief history of the true story of the Island of the Blue Dolphins and this young girl, which not much is known about. But as we said, Scott O'Dell is a historical fiction writer. So his stories do have truth, right? They're all based on truth. So this is really fascinating because she shares the entry from a Santa Barbara mission book of burials, Santa Barbara, California, right? And here's what it says. On October 19th, 1853, I gave ecclesiastical burial in a cemetery to the remains of Juana Maria, the Indian woman brought from San Nicolas Island And since there was no one who could understand her language, she was baptized conditionally by Friar Sanchez. Okay, so basically there's this island, San Nicolas, which is 70 miles south of uh, Southern California. And there was a woman found there. She'd been alone for 18 years and nobody really knows her name. She was just sort of known as the lone woman of San Nicolas. Nobody really knew how old she was. Some people said they thought she was 50. Others said they thought she was 30. They couldn't really know her story because 
Nobody understood her language. And once she had been brought to California, she's exposed to all these sicknesses and things. And within seven weeks, she had passed away. So it's not like she even had time to learn a language. Nobody had time to figure out her language. And it's just really kind of sad and tragic. And so there were lots of stories surrounding her. What is known is this. For thousands of years, the Nicolaino tribe had lived peacefully on this tiny three by nine mile island. This island of the Blue Dolphins, it's a real island. There was a tribe that had lived there forever. And in 1811, a Russian-American trading company led by an American captain went to hunt sea otters. And they're pretty sure that they slaughtered the whole tribe. And somehow this woman survived. Well, they think that there were a few of the original natives left, like in the story, and that a ship had come to rescue them. They think that either the woman was left behind or that she ran back to the village to get her child, or she may have jumped off the ship to go get her child. There's all these rumors, but nobody really knows for sure. And so what's really awesome, I love that Scott O'Dell like tried to give this woman a story because nobody really knew it. They knew that she had been alone for like 18 to 20 years. And they said she was a very good looking woman, which is kind of an interesting thing. To like, you, you know, I'm to picturing a woman of. alone on an island for 18 years and not picturing a good looking woman. You'd think that she would be weathered. Yeah. Like right. wrinkled. Which, which, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you would kind of think so. Interesting. But yeah. Like in, in the Sacramento newspaper, which they have no obligation to say anything like that, but they're like, she's about middle age and very good looking. I wonder Super if you could find a picture of her. Probably not, but I don't know. We'll have to look. Maybe that would be interesting. Yeah. yeah. I read somewhere that they didn't know there was rumors that there was a, a boy on the island. So they didn't know if it was her brother or her son or, you know, something that she went back for, but, and that he made her younger in this book to appeal to younger authors. Uh, mm -hmm. audience so yeah but i think he also went off the fact that some people said she looked like she was 30 and so he was like well if she was 30 back up 18 years Girl. she's 12 you know and again you know some people thought she looked 50 it's it was just hard to tell oh yeah and like one thing in the book is why did they not go back the ship like why did they not come back they knew she was there i think it's important to understand this is based on truth. It really is Scott O'Dell like honoring that woman the best way that he can. I love it. This kind of reminds me of Ruta Sepetis, who like takes a a piece of history like this that's like not well known hmm. and then gives it a story. He's the Ruta Sepetis of his time. He is. <laughs> yes. And for children. The first three chapters, first of all, it's important to know that the book is narrated in first person. So it's told from the perspective of this young girl, Karana. So an Aleut, and that, that's how I'm saying that tribe name. <laughs> so I don't know if that's right. The ship arrives at a small island 70 miles from the coast of Southern California. On board are these members of this Alaskan tribe called the Aleuts. And that's the best way I could think of to pronounce that. They're led by a Russian-American trader. And their mission is to hunt for and retrieve otter pelts. So Karana and her brother Ramo are members of the Galasat tribe and are natives of the island. They observe the Aleut tribe arriving and neither of them have ever seen a ship before. And I think it's really important also to note that the ship has red sails. That doesn't happen very often. So I think that is deeply symbolic. It is an omen, like it's a forewarning. The village has been told that the ship is arriving and so a greeting party goes to the beach half of them are there to greet and the other half are hiding just in case they're you know sort of like 
just in case they're needed to come out and fight if necessary. Karana and Ramo's father is a chief of their tribe. And their tribe is quite small. There's only 42 men. And then there's women and children too. And they greet this captain. His name is Captain Orloff. And they discuss why the Elliots are there and what the expectations are. So again, these people have come to get otters, otter pelts. And the agreement is that they will do all the hunting themselves. Apparently, many years earlier, a similar party had come and they had forced the Galasats to do all the hunting for them. And it was just a really bad time. So this group is like, you know, yeah, we're going to do all the hunting ourselves and you will get one part for every two of ours, if that makes sense. But the chief was like, no, we need to get equal parts. He's like, this is our island. We own this island and, and all the sea around it. And so basically you're on our property. Whatever you get, you need to pay us half. So the captain, he's like reluctant, but then he like, he's just like gives him this big smile. He's like, all right. You know, it's very suspicious. The Aleuts and the Russian captain, they all set up camp on the island. And the Galasat chief, he warns his people, he's like, never go to their camp. Don't try to befriend them. But instead, both tribes are constantly spying on each other. Like nothing ever gets by the other. They always know what's going on in the other's camp. We do take this moment to find out that the reason it's called the Island of the Blue Dolphins is because the island itself is actually like shaped like a dolphin. It is quite small, but it's it's shaped like a dolphin, which is kind of cool. And they do have lots of dolphins around there. And also the wind is blowing constantly. Like to me, it's just so, so miserable. I yeah. hate the wind so much. <laughs> and I live in a very windy place, but it's fine. I don't like wind either. I don't like cold. I don't like wind. And and she's always saying it was too windy to do this. It was too windy yeah. to sleep here. It was, too, you know, I didn't want to put yeah, my house the, here because it's too windy. Yeah, totally. And the wind plays a major factor in a lot of things that happen in the book. So it is springtime when the Aleuts come. So it's springtime. And we note that because spring is a really hard time for the Galasat tribe because they cannot get as many fish. The fish have like gone deeper into the ocean and they just can't get them as easily. And so they have to work really extra hard during the spring to like get roots and other things for their tribe to eat. Like they're, they're constantly working for food. But one day Karana's older sister, like happened to come across all of these large white bass that had sort of accidentally been beached. Like they were trying to escape predators and they got caught in waves and beached them basically. So she runs back, tells the women of their village and they all go and get all these beautiful, large white bass, which must be very large because seven of them will feed their entire village. There's 14 total that they get. So they have this wonderful meal of beautiful, fresh fish. The next morning, two members of the Aleut tribe come and they're like, we know you have fish. You need to give us some fish. And the chief is like, no, we know you guys have plenty of food. We don't. And this is our fish. And they're like, well, you already ate some. So give us more, you know, give us some of the extra. And he's like, well, no, we had enough to feed our tribe last night. And now there's enough to feed us for one more night. And that's what we're going to do because his concern is his tribe. So they're pretty upset, obviously. You just came on our island and you come up to us and say, you're just going to take the food that we hunted, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Well, the, yeah, their entire attitude is pretty incredible. So, yes. So at the very last of this though, the Galasats are observing that things are changing 
at the Aliyut camp and they're very observant. They're like, the captain is trimming his beard. This person that we are pretty sure is a woman with them has like washed her apron. So they're just doing things differently. And so they're like, we think they're getting ready to go. And they have not seen any of the payment that they were promised. So they're told to like, just keep watching because they don't want them to just take off in the middle of the night without having paid for having been there. I mean, it's like going to a hotel or an Airbnb using all the amenities and then just leaving and not paying for anything. I mean, it's actually worse than that, but you see what I'm saying? It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. That's the end of that. Was there anything that you wanted to pull out of there? Yeah. That was actually really quite good. Well, one thing was the captain at first offers to pay for a third of the pelts with supplies. And then eventually he agrees to half. And you said he like smiles funny, right? At them. I mean, based on what they do later, which we'll talk about, I don't think he was planning on paying for them at all. Yeah, I don't think so. Ever from the beginning. Later in the book, what he does try to pay for them with is useless to these people. Completely. Anyways, I just thought that was really interesting. And so I don't know. This is the next thing, too. So my second thing was that the Aleuts and Karana's tribe are constantly watching each other, right? The Aleuts are counting how many otter pelts they're killing. Because they know they're going to get cheated based on their last experience with the people that came. When they demand a share of the bass that Ulape found. So they they came in and they demanded all this food. And it just reminded me, and I'm sure he kind of gauged this on like when the people from England come over and find the indigenous people here. And I don't understand, I guess, what makes one group that way and the other group not, right? Like who gives the, who decides the dominance here? But like they come in and they're just like, oh, we deserve half of what you got and or more or we deserve it all. And you can't live here anymore and you need to move. And I don't know. It's just how arrogant to come into a place that's not your home. It'd be like your neighbor is coming over and barging in through the door and saying, you're making dinner. Well, we're going to take half. (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty preposterous for sure. Or thanks for making dinner for us. We'll. Yeah, we'll take that now. See ya. Okay. It's just incredible. I just loved that they were both watching each other. Neither of them trusted the other. The tribe doesn't trust the Aleuts, but the Aleuts are just there to get what they think is theirs or what they can out of them to take advantage of them. So Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's staggering how many otter pelts they take. And that's one thing too, is that- Karana is worried. Karana, she is. She's like, they're taking so many- And I love the otters. Like, why? And then her dad is like, it's fine. There's others that are hiding. They'll come out when they leave. Yeah. And they'll like reproduce and it's going to be just like, he's not really even worried about that aspect of it, which I think is interesting, but she is. And they take a lot. And we'll talk about that in the next chapters. But Okay. So chapters four through six. So at the end of chapter three, it's just, we in the village of Galazat knew that Captain Orloff and his hunters were getting ready to leave the island. She said her father doesn't really say anything except he just keeps working on his spear. That's literally where it ends. So, okay. So there's a a confrontation here, basically. So Karana and her sister are hiding in the brush and they're watching her father who's talking to Captain Orloff. The men had taken all of their weapons down to the beach and we know the Aleuts hadn't paid for any of the otter, but they're loading the pelts onto the boats and taking them out to their ship. So they had warning that the, they were getting ready to go. Yeah. And so they're just watching this, not hearing what anybody's saying, but the captain comes back from his ship with a black chest, which... When her father opens it, has a bunch of sparkly necklaces in it. So that's what I was talking about. You 
what good is that? And then like, what's her? They can't do anything with that. Yeah. And the dad's like, well, these are nice and they'd be fun to have, but this isn't going to pay for what you took either. This isn't enough. So he's just not pleased with what the captain is offering. And he's, and the captain says, well, there's more chests on the ship with spear, iron spearheads in them. And then the chief is like, okay, well, we'll help you load the, the otter onto our boats and get them out to your ship. And he won't let them. So we'll let that be a lesson, right? Like, yeah, because he was like, that's fine, but you need to bring those chests over here first before you take the rest of the pelt. Yeah. And that's when he gives the number of pelts that they have. Says Karana isn't sure who starts the fight, but a fight breaks out between them and five villagers are dead. The women are throwing rocks at the Aleuts, but then they stop because they can't tell who they're throwing rocks at. Like, it's just a big mess of people. And they're like, they didn't want to hurt their men, which is funny. Cause I always think about that with like shooting guns. It's like, how do you know? Like if there's a big brawl, how do you know what you're shooting at? Okay. So Karana's father then falls to the ground and he doesn't get up. We learn later that her mother had died several years ago. And so this leaves the children orphans, the three kids that we know about. Captain Orloff brings more alleyutes from the ship. And now the tribe just doesn't have any chance of fighting back because there's just too many of them. And then, like you said, the wind, here comes the wind, starts picking up. And a storm is coming, which is why the Aleuts are so quickly trying to leave, Mm -hmm. trying to get their pelts on the ship and leave so they don't get caught in this storm. And so they just jump back on their boats and head towards their ship, and they're gone. And so Karana and her sister run to the beach and see that most of their men are wounded And their father is dead. In the beginning, when the Aleuts first come, the chief gave his real name, his secret Mm -hmm. name to um, the captain. And they they blame this on why he died. Well, he probably died because he gave him his secret name. And they kind of wondered when he did that, why he was doing it. It was not a normal thing at all. Yeah. And so he gave away, basically he gave away his power to them is what they they believe. But it's just interesting that that's what they blame it on. They don't blame it on the captain or the hunters. You said there was 42 men. Now there's only 15 men left and seven of them are old. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of in trouble. So the storm goes on for a couple of days. And finally, on the third day, they're able to bury their dead. Then after they bury them, they spend a few days in silence grieving. They talk about leaving the island, but eventually everybody decides that they want to stay. And so now the new chief, Kim Ki, he's an old man. They said he was an old man, but a good hunter. So he gets chosen as the new chief. He announces that the women are going to need to start doing the things that the men were doing, hunting, building canoes. There had been definite gender roles, right? The women stayed at home, cooked, cleaned, gathered. Nobody is happy about this new assignment of jobs. Well, the men aren't happy, I guess. She says in here that, or not she, but she slash the author. It's so hard did the woman work that we really fared better than before when the hunting was done by the men. They like took it very seriously and put in their best effort. And so it was actually going better. And then the men did not like the men did not like that part. (laughs) Now, another interesting thing is when the men died, a lot of their dogs that they had as pets went to the wild dog pack. And so the wild dog pack got bigger at that point. And so they were kind of worried about that. They also believed that the people who died in the battle were haunting the island. And Karana is thinking about her father all the time. Okay, so during the winter, the tribe just kind of settles into their houses. And then when spring comes, Kim Ki, this old man, 
announces that he's going to take a canoe because he thinks he knows of an island where they can go live. And he's going to go check it out. And he says, I promise I'm going to come back for you guys. But they're kind of like, I don't know if you're going to come back. They didn't know if he would actually come back. And if he did, they thought it would be a long time. So the people in the tribe are scared. There's not as much water because there had been less storm that year. And Kim Ki hadn't come back yet. So they appoint a new chief, Mata Saip. Yeah, so Mata Saip had uh, taken Kim Ki's place. And he tells them to worry about more important things, like if the Aleuts come back. This is very funny. He's yeah, like, which yeah. is, it's that time of year. They totally could. Yeah. We have worse problems to worry about. And he says, because if they come back, we don't have enough men to defend us. So they decide if they do come back, they're just going to leave. The first sighting of them, they're gone. So they hide food, water, and then they stock their canoes at the south end of the island. And then they have someone watching day and night for the Aleuts. One day, one man come, the man that's watching comes back and says, they've come, they've come. The new chief says, stay calm, only pack what you need, go to the canoes and wait for word. And um, Karana, this is funny because such a kid, right? She packs more than what she needs. She packs her yucca skirt and her otter cape, worried about those things. And then as they're heading to the packed canoes, the man comes and says, well, actually, it's not the Aleuts. This ship is small and it has a white sail. And so the new chief says, go wait by the canoes while I go check things out. While Ramo is down, so her little brother is down checking on the canoes, a man comes back with a message and says, this ship belongs to the white men and Kim Ki has sent them to get us. We don't know where we're going, but Kim Ki knows where you're going. Because they're all waiting at the canoes when they he comes in is like, okay, we can go. So they actually go back to their village because they're able to now pack more. He's with them that whole time. There are times that he kind of like leaves to go back, but then he comes back. So he is with them as they are traveling to the beach. So this is now in chapter seven. They're all together. They're traveling towards the beach. Ramo comes back to, to Karana and is like, I want to run back to the village because I forgot my fishing spear. And Karana's like, no, there's no way you're not going to do that, you know, because again, what's the weather like? So windy. And so they know they're like crunched for time because the ship needs to get out pretty soon. He's with all of them. They get down to the beach and they see several canoes. Now, uh, several other people had gone ahead to the ship before them. And Karana was told by this guy, Nanko. He's like, oh, yeah, your brother had run ran ahead after you talked to him and told him not to go back to the village. He ran ahead with these other people. And I saw him jump on one of the boats and go to the ship. So that's what she's going on. She's like, OK, so she gets on these little boats. They go out to the ship and it's just chaos because the sailors are just like all over the place trying to save the ship so it doesn't run aground or run into rocks and things like that. The deck is just crowded with all these people trying to figure out what to do. She's trying to find her brother and she's like oh he's gonna be so curious about everything the sailors are doing he's gonna um be in their way and so she's like i gotta find him now she can't find him she can't find him anywhere and she asks everybody it was like no i haven't seen him and all of a sudden they look up and there he is on the cliff running across the cliff with his little fishing spear she's like oh my gosh, we have to go back for him we have to go back for him they're like no there's no way even the chief of the tribe was just like no we can't. They're like, he'll be fine. Like, he'll be safe on the island, which I don't know. He's six. Can we talk about that? I mean, yeah. I know six-year-olds at that point in time were 
probably, especially like this little boy living on an island, so much more competent than our six-year-olds today. Like, 100%. He's still six. He's still a little boy. And they know there's like these pack of wild dogs running around and all these things that could happen, especially to a little boy who like doesn't really pay attention, you know? They're like, no, he'll, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Karana is having none of it. And so she does grab her two because she decides to pack two baskets of things. Like you say, it was probably a little more than she should have. And she jumps into the ocean to swim back. And when she pops, it, she's like, it feels, it felt like I was under the ocean forever. But when she pops back up, she looks back and the ship is like a long way away. And they, they do, they sail away. I don't think they really feel like they have a choice because if they stay any longer, the ship will probably run into rocks and everybody's ruined, you know? Anyway, she realizes she has to drop her baskets. There's no way she's going to swim back to the beach with them, but she's a strong swimmer. She gets there and her little brother has like made her way down to the beach and is there and it's sort of that moment when like if you've lost your kid and you're like so mad at them because you're like why did you like run off what are you even thinking but then as soon as you see them like all that is forgotten because you're just so relieved that they're just fine and that you found them so she kind of had that moment so the children then they make their way back to their village which is just like so lonely. Like imagine all these huts that are just completely empty. There's nothing there. And they discover that that pack of wild dogs, as soon as, basically as soon as everybody left, like woo party. And they're just like scavenging and they've, they've already found a bunch of the food and have eaten it. But the children, they are able to pretty much keep the dogs at bay, maybe because of the fire that they have going and things like that. Other than that, they're like constantly hunting for food. You know, they're just, it's like what we've talked about before. Just first need is to is food and water, right? Yeah. <laughs> Survival. When that need is met, you can move on to other things. But for so long, like, and for so many people, like that's their top concern. And we see that vividly illustrated here. Like that's all they could do. That's all they could think about was just getting food. I mean, can you imagine you're like, what, she's probably 12, a 12 year old and a six year old. Yeah. Realizing that they're the only two people on the island. Yeah. And now all of that is up to them. Food, protecting themselves from the dogs and the, ugh, I don't know. Yeah, completely. Well, and this might be a good time to back up because I realized I kind of like jumped right into this chapter because I was like, oh, well, this is what happened wrong. But that was one thing that I underlined and starred was just the people were so full of grief because of what had happened to so many of the men in their village. So many people had been killed. But because they stayed so busy, were working so hard, they couldn't really think about it. And then as soon as their baskets were full, they had all the food they needed for, you know, fall and winter or whatever. That's when like the depression set in and it was just so heavy and they couldn't, couldn't deal with it. Didn't it say that there wasn't a, there was not a person on the tribe that didn't have a brother or a son or die or a husband die? Yeah. So they'd like, all lost at least one person. Every yeah. person was dealing with immense loss. Yeah. I just I just really thought it was funny that like when the captain says the women are gonna start hunting and fishing, that it got better. <laughs> I know. I know. I totally underlined that. I was like, all right. Which could be because they were I mean, they needed to try really hard because mm-hmm. They were weaker. I mean, you know, they, it would have been harder for them to do those things. And so they probably put in a lot of effort because they knew that they needed food and 
you know, I just thought that was really funny. And then the men are like offended that it's going better. I mean, wouldn't yeah. they be like, oh, the, it reminded me of a book I read, Island of the Sea Wim- Women. It, the roles were reversed. The men stayed home with the children and mm. the women went and dove for the food. They went, they fished. It was because the women had more fat on their bodies. And so they were more equipped to dive into this cold water. It was interesting to read about the women being like in, they didn't just get the food, they were in charge. Hmm. And I think that maybe that's how it works. Kind of like the men are kind of in charge. So this book is called The Island of Sea Women by Lisa C. Have you ever read anything by Lisa C? Yes. Didn't she do Snowflower and the Secret Fan? I don't know. I can look. So she's such a good author. What I'm thinking is, does the fact that, yes, she did. Snowflower and the Secret Fan. That's a brutal book. But anyway, go ahead. So is this one. (laughs) Yes. But like, does the fact that whoever's providing the food and the sustenance is, that's who's naturally in charge. I think so, because I think it, again, goes back to what are our most basic needs and who is providing those most basic needs. Because without those most basic needs, we don't survive. We can't do anything else. And I think the men, it gave the men a sense of pride that Mm -hmm. they had been the ones that were providing it. And when they took that away, then they kind of suffered emotionally Mm -hmm. and they couldn't handle it. So jumping back into the summary of seven through nine. So they're by themselves. The village is horrifying because it's just so lonely. And they are pretty much just spending all their time looking for food. But it's kind of interesting because they have this little conversation. And again, she is 12. He is six. Oh, right. I don't currently have a six-year-old, but I do have an almost 12-year-old. And a just eight-year-old. And that just like... I have a six-year-old. Yes, you do. Okay. Who cried like a banshee all the way to school on Friday on her bike because she was so cold the whole way. We got to school and she goes, I'm going home. And I was (laughs) like, I just listened to you scream for eight minutes while we rode our bikes here. You're not coming home with me. It just made me laugh. I'm like, this kid is going to like provide for his, they're going to have to do everything by themselves. Everything I know. And it's kind of heartbreaking. And again, at that point in time, these kids were extremely competent. And I know that that's not just a fictional thing. I think about how my, my grandpa talked about how he was driving a full team of horses when he was six years old. Like that's nuts. (laughs) We would You know, a lot of kids are like doing a full day of work, whatever. So they're having this conversation and Rama is like, is the ship going to come? And she says, I don't know, but it's probably going to be a while. And he actually says, you know, I don't care if it never comes. And she says, well, why? And he's like, because I just, I like just being here with you. It kind of comes out that he has this sense of responsibility. He's realized my father has died. My father was the chief. I'm his son. I'm the chief, you know, and it's kind of sweet that he's like taking on these big roles and responsibilities because he's like, this is who I am. So I need to step up and do more. And so he's like, tomorrow I'm going to go to the place where they would hide their canoes and I'm going to get the canoes so that we can do better fishing. She's like, you're very small to do that. But he, he's like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. So he's just very serious about this responsibility. And, and she says, now that he had become chief of Galasat. I would have even more trouble with him. 
but I wanted to run after him and take him in my arms. And it's just, it is kind of more like the emotions that a mother would feel towards her son, but it's really, it's the sweet sisterly, like you're going to be a handful, but gosh, I love you. But she was like his mom. She totally was. They didn't have a mom. So yes. Yeah, she really was filling that role. That's true. Because of this new responsibility, which Ramo has given himself, one night he just gets up in the middle of the night to go get those hidden canoes. Karana wakes up and realizes he's gone and realizes that's probably what he's done. And she's like, oh my gosh, she didn't know he was going to do that. And she just thinks of everything that could possibly go wrong, which again, is a very motherly instinct, I think. And so she like starts after him. And then finally, and she kind of like talks herself out of it just because she's like, if it's just going to be us two on the island, like he is going to have to do some more grown up things. Like I, I can't do everything myself, you know? And so she's like, there's all these other things that I can go take care of. So she's like, he, you know, if, if all goes well, he should be pulling into the beach at about this time and I'll be there to greet him and it'll be fine. So she goes, she's just working away, super busy. He never shows up. And so she like makes her way back to the village. He's not there. I can only imagine she's starting to panic. So she starts retracing his route. She comes across the wild dogs and they're all in a circle and they're circling a body and it's little Ramo and he is dead. They they have killed her little brother, not without a fight though, because he took out two of the dogs. And it just, I, this was, was a rough the, part for me. This that was, was a point part. where I knew I had read it because- was it? I remembered that scene of the little boy laying on the ground with all the dogs around him. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've read this book. Wow. Well, that is pretty rough. Until then, I didn't even think, I mean, I thought the boy, I thought the boy was going to be around. Like, And then I was like, oh yeah. And then there's a couple sentences later that I'm like, oh yeah, that reminded me, oh yeah, this is what happens in this book. I don't tell Mm -hmm. you when that happened. But But it was almost like you needed that sort of big trigger to be like, oh yeah. Yep. And then but it's just funny it. how when you read like decades ago, just specific scenes really stand out to you. Totally. And so that was it. It was like, mm-hmm. it, and maybe it was a part of the book that really, like I was able to visualize or something. And then that's what brought it back. I don't know. I have no recollection of what class I read it in, <laughs> what teacher I had, but I remember that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. That's, that's amazing though. And Obviously, it really affected you. It almost makes me wonder, did you, were any of your siblings, would they have possibly been about six at the time? When I was 12, my sister, well, my brother was born when I was 12 and the younger sister would have been about five. So when I was in middle school, she was that age. Yeah. So it does make me wonder if you're- And I had a new little brother, like my only brother. He was a newborn. Yeah. So So it really makes me wonder if you're sort of like tying those things together. Yeah. Um, so Karana carries Ramo's little body back to the village and the whole, and she's just planning her vengeance on the dogs. She's like, I'm going to kill every single one of them. In fact, she sort of like stalks them back to their cave and she like fantasizes about killing all of them about like setting all these weeds on fire and pushing it back into the cave till they all die and realizes she can't do that. Like there's not enough weeds. Otherwise she probably would have. Obviously she is, she's in a pretty dark place. Like I can't even imagine she doesn't leave the village except to get food and then she's just back but then one day it's like super foggy and i said ghost town before but now it really almost like looks like a ghost town because the way is the fog is sort of like going in and out of the huts and it's just very eerie and she's like i'm done so she burns down every hut (laughs) it's 
gone. No more village of Galasat. It's also not like super safe for theirs. So because the wild dogs keep getting more and more aggressive. And so she finds this high place where she can safely keep her food and herself. And the dogs like eventually find where she is, but she is safe up there. But she's like, I've got to have weapons. Like I've got to be able to protect myself from these dogs. But it was against the law for women to make weapons, which is a strange law, but there are definitely stranger ones. And she cannot wrap her head around the fact that there's nobody there that's going to enforce this law. <laughs> She's just like, it's against the law. I can't do it. I can't. She's pretty sure that it's a really interesting, just really interesting psychology because she doesn't know why it's a law, but she thinks that something supernatural is going to happen to her or something like she's going to just be four winds are going to come and blow her away or something. So would the four winds blow in from the four directions of the world and smother me as I made the weapons or would yeah. the earth tremble as many said and bury me beneath its falling rocks? Yeah. She or would it flood? Would the weapons break her hands? So she's just scared to death. She's scared to death because it was against the law to make weapons. Yeah. And so she's like thinking of all her options and she's like, huh, whatever happened to that chest that the Aleuts gave us? Because they left without it, So, but we never used it. So there must be something. So she's like, maybe there's something in there I could use. So she goes and looks for it. It's kind of, it's like, you know, buried because it's been a while, but she finds it and she it is. It's full of all these jewels and she puts them on. She she thinks that she looks so pretty. But then she's like, no, I can't use these. I can't even look at them because everything they represent is just so disgusting to her. So she actually throws all of them in the ocean and there's nothing useful at all. There's no nothing for weapons. So she's kind of back at ground zero. And then she finally is like, well, I'll take whatever consequences. I have to be able to protect myself from the dogs. So She's super smart. She fashions these weapons. Uh, she makes a spear. She makes a bow and arrow. And she's finally able to go about confidently because she's able to protect herself from the dogs. Just the last part is she has made a actually a pretty pleasant camp for herself. She lives on the headland and it's just, it's very nice and it's comfortable. Winter passes and spring passes and the ship never comes. Yeah, I thought that the whole idea of her deciding that she needed to make weapons was just so interesting because I think children often when especially when they're taught like religion so this was mm -hmm. partly like it was against the law of her tribe but it was like kind of a religion like the supernatural was going to come in and get her if she didn't mm -hmm. if she made weapons right and I think kids are funny they almost believe that like oh, yeah. if they tell a lie or something then the first time they do it and they're like nothing struck me down. Like this worked. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing came in and hurt me. I don't know. Just do kids understand things, you know, like a grown woman may have just been like, well, there's nobody here and I have to make a weapon. They wouldn't have had that internal fight with themselves. Yeah, that's true. At the same time, like it is indoctrination can be a very powerful thing. I think about that book that I talked about I think a couple weeks ago a house without windows and just the culture in Afghanistan they may you like teach it as religion but it's actually not religiously based it's totally like their interpretation of crap because there's a lot of women that completely support the honor killings and yeah. blaming a woman if she's raped and all these things and it's it's like what how can you but it's very powerful and so even for a full-grown woman who we would hope their brain has completely developed. I think 
sometimes it can develop in not the best way. Well, and she's like, I guess I'm going to take my chances. Yeah. Because I know if I don't make the weapons, I'm going to die. Yeah. And I think that that is a very empowering place to get to also, because that's how you break out of it. It's like, I just, I have to take a chance. So the other thing I thought was funny was Ramo giving his chief name, which I tried to practice saying Tanio Sitlopai (laughs) is hilarious. And, and of course, because of his gender, he would be the chief even at six years old, you know? And then the other funny part was when she's like, well, you're going to have to be a man first and you know what it takes to be a man. Like, I'm going to have to whip you with switch of nettles and I'm going to tie you to the red anthill. And then she's like, well, maybe we won't have to do those things. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I was like, okay, was she kind of joking? I'm not I sure. I don't know. Uh, but I know there are lots of these rites of passages that I've read about that I'm like, oh my gosh, how did anybody even survive those? But, I know. Or why would you want to? Like, Why would you want to? You know what? Never mind. I'm not going to be a man. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to leave. But there's that power of indoctrination again, though. You know, this is what we do. And this is the only way. Yeah. And who came up with these ideas? Who came up with them? Totally. Good grief. I know. Anyways, I just I just thought that was really cute. Like he was six and his name was hilarious. When she finally started making the weapons, she talked about how there were some things that she couldn't do because like. They normally made spearheads out of a sea elephant's tusk, but you could only get that if you could catch the sea elephant. And that took like three men and then a special net. So instead, like she took the root of a tree and it's already very hard, but then she hardened it more in the fire and she very clever, very clever. But she makes a note here where she's like, you know, I'd watched my father do all this many times. I'd watched him and really see nothing. I had watched but not with the eye of one who would ever do it. And I think that's really interesting. I think there's so many things that we can be there, we can observe and think, oh, we're taking all this in. But until we actually do something, we just have no idea. Honestly, I think this is kind of a weird example, but I think I have do not have the greatest sense of direction. And I think that I'm observant. I think I'm observant with some things, but when it comes to like driving around and seeing places, I'm horrible, not observant at all. Uh, in fact, like, I, we had a, a fireside actually with Elder Renland. He was here just a few days ago and it was at the stake center, which turns out is like five minutes from our house. It took me like 20 minutes to get there because I totally typed in the wrong thing in the maps and I trusted the maps and I went this totally roundabout stupid way. And this place, I've driven by it like a million times, but I had no idea it was there. The way that I get to know places, I could tell you about a lot of things downtown here because I run downtown because when you run, you don't want to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You're out on your you're own. <laughs> way, you're totally on your own. So you're like really experiencing the roads and the places and the buildings. And you also like want to know all the places you could potentially stop and go to the bathroom or whatever. And so you're like in there doing it and it forces you to remember all the street signs and the street names and the, all the stores and where they are. This stake center was in the opposite direction of where I ever run. So any thoughts along those no, lines? That's really <laughs> funny. Like I would, I mean, our daughter, Audrey is totally oblivious to what's <laughs> like out. Like she, I mean, our, okay. You know where we live and you know where Madison middle school is. Mm-hmm. She didn't know how to get home from school. <laughs> 
it's literally one turn. Like, literally. Well, two, I guess. But, like, once she made the one turn and walked, she would, you'd see our house. But she just, and we would just be like, you know, she'd look up because I think she never looks up. She's always Mm -hmm. like looking at a book or something or her phone or whatever. And so we'd be like, she would look up and she'd be like, where are we? And we'd look at her like, how do you not know where we are? We're literally at the grocery store that we shop. (laughs) You know, it's like two minutes from our house. Yeah. Yeah. Really funny. I don't know. That just cracks me up to think about not. Yeah. Not understanding direction. That would be that would be hard. I'm not good with like north, south, east, and west. Mm-hmm. But I know yeah. how to get around, and like, and then and our daughter Sydney is kind of like that too. She doesn't really know how to get around very well. And kids these days don't use GPS. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I do not know why. She will, I guess, if she doesn't know where things are. I don't know. But they like they won't use their map. They're weird. She doesn't really navigation. Mm-mm. I cannot survive without it. I know. Sometimes I know. it leads me astray, but I still can't survive that. Unless, like I said, I run all over someplace and then then I'm fine. But, but. And I work for I work in Portland and I drive all over Portland once a week. And like we went up there for my sister got married Friday and we went up there for her oh. dinner. Oh. I know. I'm like, oh. That's super exciting. So we went to this fancy restaurant for dinner afterwards. We didn't go to the wedding because it was just like my parents and her his mom. Oh, okay. It was at the courthouse. So we just went out to dinner afterwards, but we were driving around and like, I'm really good at using the maps, the Google map or the whatever. Yeah. Google maps on the navigation. I'm really good at it because I, that's what I do for my job. And, yeah, totally. And I also know where everything in Portland is and how, you know, Portland is like Portland, but then there's so many towns around it and cities. It's just all yeah. big, one big glob. Right. And so I totally know how they all relate to each other now. I've been mm. doing this for 13 years. Like I just, <sighs> anyways, but it's just funny to take my husband up there who, when he's with me, he's driving and he's like, he has kind of has a hard time reading the navigation, like knowing what to do. And I mean, I have the advantages I'm sitting in the passenger seat. Yeah. So yeah. I can see it, but like, I'm just really practiced at it. Yeah, and totally. I know, you know, he was like, what do I do? I'm like, oh, you don't want to get in this lane because- we have a couple more exits to go or I don't know. It's just funny. Well, because that's yeah. the thing too. Even with navigation, there's times like you still have to know which lanes to be in when. And and that is, it's just a matter of practice. I mean, sometimes I struggle. <laughs> like, what is it telling me to do? Wow. Especially in Portland. Good grief. I know. It's really hard. But I'm very okay. comfortable with driving places I don't know because I do it all yeah. the time. I think that's awesome. It really is like a skill. A hidden skill <laughs> I didn't know I had or needed or... <laughs> Okay, so we just made an executive decision that we're going to split this up into three episodes instead of two. So we're going to end here. Surprise. This is the beauty of doing your own podcast. (laughs) The next episode will be chapters 10 through 18. What we were discussing is that this book is short, but he packs a lot of information into it. And so it's hard to really do a a synopsis that's short. Yeah, because again, he's just like, there's no wasted time. He's just packing a lot of story into a small book. And it's, I, I think it's, it's really wonderful. And I think that's the best way for a children's book because they don't want to worry about fluff and descriptions. Yeah. It's like, let's be very efficient. Awesome. So what have, what have you been reading? 
Okay. Well, I was going to talk about a book that I finished, but I hated it. So I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, oh, okay. You, you might have to tell me about it. <laughs> well, it was Mame by Jessica George. And I believe mm. it was a celebrity book pick. I don't remember which one, but I hated it. So <laughs> okay. I was like, do I talk about it? Do I hate on it? No, I'm just going to tell you I hated it. So if you want to read it and then guess why, then I am reading a book I'm loving right now. It's called Hello Beautiful by Anne Nap- Napolitano. People on other book podcasts are saying like it's the best book they've read this year. And, mm. and it's really interesting because it's reminded me a lot of Anne Patchett's book. What was it called? Dutch House? Or... Yes, Dutch House. Okay. And I'm like trying to figure out why I like books like this because mm. it's very quiet. It's character driven. And I think of myself as being somebody who's not character driven. I like a plot, but I'm really liking this book. And it's giving me a lot of the same vibes as the Dutch house. Mm. Oh, it's so good. So she also wrote Dear Edward, which I know is another book that people loved and I've never read. So maybe I'll have to go back and read this now. It's about a boy named William Waters. So basically when he was, his mom was at the hospital giving birth to him. His sister, who was three, got a fever and died, got sick and died. Mm. And so his parents like basically hated him, couldn't look at him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. So he discovers his a love of basketball. He ends up growing to be like six foot seven, which is not like his parents aren't even tall. So they don't know where, where it came from. But he ends up getting a basketball scholarship into a, to a college that's far away. And he leaves and he like never sees his parents again. Like he has no relationship with them. Mm-hmm. At one point he has a problem and like the authorities or the hospital call his parents and his parents are like, oh, he's an adult. He can handle himself. And they haven't even like talked to him in years. I mean, it's just very sad. Well, that kind of a childhood scars you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he has a lot of problems. And so um, he meets this girl named Julia Padovano and she has three sisters and they are, their family is tight. So he ends up marrying her and getting, just like joining her family. But, you know, this upbringing causes him a lot of like issues. And so yeah. he struggles with mental illness and commitment. And anyways, it's just very good. I'm loving it. Awesome. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I I would love to figure out what the style is that, okay. Another interesting thing is I've told you about books before where I'm like, five hours into a book and I have no clue what's happening. But then how come there's books like this where I'm listening to every word? Like, Mm. What's the difference? Yeah. What catches you from the very beginning? Is it the style of writing? Is it? I don't know. So I'm going to figure that out. And also it could, it could too be like where you're at in your life. Like there's different things that you just relate to better. But I do think that the style of writing, if you're listening to the book, the narrator and just I think that has a lot to do with it. It's so. a kind of story too. I don't know. Yeah. So this is, I guess I'm liking stories about ordinary people and their lives. Yeah. That's kind of what the Anne Patchett book was like. Like just yeah. these two siblings and their situation. I'm loving cool. it. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. I, I love it because I think I get most of my book recommendations from you. And so I was like, would it be weird if I like jump back on here and talk about the book that you just talked about? Like, do no. <laughs> no, I think it'd be interesting. So, like, what did yeah. you think? 
That's true. That's true. That's kind of the point anyway. It's because <laughs> I do all the research in what, listening to all the podcasts about books <laughs> and then true. I read them and then pass them on. So the book that I'm going to share, maybe you've read it before. So it's, but it's not actually one that I remember you talking about, but I know that we've both read a book by this author and that's why I was like, oh, I bet this is going to be good. And I read lots of good things about it. So it's called Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Have you read it? No, but I want to. Okay. So the reason that I even was like, okay, I'll try it because it's like 21 hours long or something, <laughs> but it's supposed to sort of be like a modern take on David Copperfield, which, and you can obviously see the resemblance in the titles because David Copperfield, we, you know, when we talked about Charles Dickens, we talked about how David Copperfield was like as close to an autobiography as he ever wrote. We really get a, a huge glimpse into what his life was like, you know, as very poverty stricken and sort of being thrust into the industrial the workplace as just a 12 year old and like just how awful that would be and a very high stress for just a little guy. And we also know that Charles Dickens was all about sort of this, a very positive social activism in like bringing, shedding light to working conditions and poverty and people who do work so hard, but everybody just looks down on them. And sometimes there's things outside of our control, you know, all that to say, I, I have to agree. Like, I think that Demon Copperhood, it's a pretty rough book. There's quite a bit of language, quite a lot of crassness. And I wasn't expecting that because I don't I don't think there was any in the Poisonwood Bible, like at all. So I've been kind of shocked. But at the same time, I feel like she's really trying to paint this accurate picture because it's all about this little boy who is raised in Virginia. It's Appalachia. They're hill, hillbillies. And they even in the book, they're like, hillbillies is like akin to the N-word for black people. Like you, it's so degrading. And so I I feel bad saying that. I don't think of it that way, but they do use that quite a bit in the book. And there are a lot of people that like they live in trailers and all the girls are pregnant by the time they're 16 and a lot of drug use and a lot of a lot of foster care. And that's really what it is about is like, so this little boy, he's born to a teen mom who is like a drug user and she's like, she's trying, but she was brought up in the foster system and they happen to have these neighbors who are very loving and sweet to them. They rent her, her little trailer or whatever, but they're older people who have their own grandson to raise because their daughter had gotten pregnant when she was a teenager. And then like, anyway, this little boy, his mom like goes and marries this total just trash guy who starts beating him. His mom dies from an overdose. He ends up in the foster system too. Anyway, it's really rough. And he's like 11, 10, 11, 12, you know? And I'm not even actually all the way through the book because I think it follows him into adulthood. And like I said, it's 21 hours long, yeah. but it's rough. It's really rough. But I think that her purpose was to draw attention to all these kids and these rough lives. And she's doing a very good job of it. So I've heard amazing things about it, but yeah. 21 hours scares me. So you're amazing. <laughs> Uh, well. I get excited when I see a book that's like 10 hours or, you know, cause I, I know. can read a book, a 10 hour book in seven, right. Cause I'm yeah. listening at one and a half or, but then when I see, I think the, this one, hello, beautiful is like 15 or 15 hours. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. It is. I will say, I feel like kind of, for me, I like a book that's about 12 hours Yeah, because I feel like that's 
enough time to really have fleshed out the whole story. If it's something is like eight hours, I'm like, mm, is this even a story? Is this even, <laughs> I know. Which if you ever got the book, they're, st- they're like good sized books, you know? I, yeah, I do feel like 12, 13 is like the sweet spot. But yeah. Anyway, but yeah, like, this one's really good. And even when it's like 15 hours, I'm like eight hours in and I'm thinking, what more could happen? Like, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to go. There's a lot more story here. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. Or sometimes when it's like the first hour and you're like, I feel like everything just happened that could happen. So where are we even going from here? Or there will be times that I'm like, how are they going to get all this resolved in five hours? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, think Charlie's hours. Re- I think Charlie's reading a book that's 60 hours or something right now. Uh-huh. I don't remember, but 60 hours. Oh, yeah. That, well, I guess you're, how... getting, you're getting your money's worth. Oh, yeah. That, you bought that, it. Very true. Very true. <laughs> but that's how War and Peace was 63 hours. Oh. And then Atlas Shrugged, I think may have been more than that. Yeah, it's wild. How does one person have that many words in them? I want to know. I don't know. It's crazy. I'm excited to read that someday. Yeah. Well, it was just on Hoopla. So that's amazing. Really? I know. Well, maybe I have so to read it. I would have assumed you'd it. have to wait forever. Yeah. Probably on any other uh, digital library thing you would, but it's on Hoopla. So and then I'll bring it back in two weeks. And Good. I read what you read. <laughs> awesome. I know. I always worry about that. I'm like, well, I don't want to read what she's reading because they don't have anything to talk about, but we could totally just bring it back. Yeah, we totally can because that's a good, we both have different in, like yeah perspectives on it. So it's still interesting. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss Island of the Blue Dolphins, chapters 10 through 18. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.